Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today, we're talking about Europa Universalis 4. Developed and published by Paradox Interactive, it was released for PC in 2013, with many DLCs released in subsequent years. <laughs> they first released some DLCs in 2014. Uh, they used to go at a pretty rapid pace, like between two to four per year. Um, but they slowed down to one a year now, and it is still going strong um, ten years later. Yeah, it, and I was going to say, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary. Um, and while I am uh, coming in merely as a tourist once again to the Paradox Interactive Universe uh, after our outing with Stellaris uh, a year and a half or so ago, um, Josh, you are a, a tenured Europa <laughs> Universalis player, as I understand it. <laughs> a uh, ten-yeared tenured Europa <laughs> Universalis player. Um, I first got into the series with Europa Universalis 2, probably in 2006 or so uh number three came out the next year and then i've been playing four since it came out uh you know with a couple years off here and there but this game is my highest steam playtime at over 750 hours of playing <laughs> yeah it's um i mean the games don't go by quickly i'll tell you that <laughs> yeah and i think we can we can say that despite that high hour count you're on the low end for a eu for aficionado right <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's always going to be people more obsessed than you are uh, but I, I feel like i could you know give a good tour of the game at least Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm counting on it. Um, and, and I only say that because like, whenever you encounter someone uh, talking about Europa Universalis 4, it uh, is usually accompanied by, I put so many thousand hours into that game. And I think there's really something to that because there is just a lot here. And it's really such an accomplishment of a, of a game. You know, it's it's definitely not for everyone. You know, we've already talked about Paradox and uh, the way these games uh, have complexities that are hard to absorb. But, you know, once you're in, you're really in. And um, this game, I think, uh, probably the crowning achievement of this type of grand strategy game. You know, I don't I don't know of one that does it better. Um, but then again, I'm not really an expert on this topic, so. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Like, um, this is a development studio turned publisher that really kind of cut their bones on this genre uh first doing in this kind of uh the eu era which goes from about 1400 to about 1800 but then they created games set in rome games set the crusader kings series victoria 3 came out last year i'm very much looking forward to playing that uh hearts of iron each of them kind of focusing on a different aspect of ruling over a country or large area. Yeah, and uh, for as you mentioned, this one covers, as you said, 1444 to 1821, basically the time period uh, during the Enlightenment and the emergence of the nation-state. Uh, and you are tasked with leading a nation from that during that time period, 1444 to 1821. It, it's a time of a lot of consolidation among the historical states in Europe, which, spoiler alert, Europa Universalis will be... Um, focused on that quite a bit oh we didn't do a spoiler warning Shit. <laughs> i mean i don't think we really need to this is literally history what uh, happens with britain's <laughs> 13 colonies i don't know <laughs> yeah how did it work out over there with the celestial throne um <laughs> <laughs> uh but but yeah it's um 
it's a great period of cons- consolidation and centralization, and it's this time where this idea of the nation-state, where a nation-state is composed of a people, of a culture, um, rather than, like, you know, some dude was king of it for a while. Um, that's where mm-hmm. it really starts to take root, and they do a lot to kind of model that within the game. Yeah, it's it's really quite impressive. And, and before we get a little more into um, the... Uh, the complexities and and specificness of uh, all of the various things you're doing in this uh, nation state. I want to mention that this game, despite the fact that it's been in released development with DLCs and such since 2013, was actually in development since 2010. So we're kind of coming up on like the 15 year anniversary of this game's <laughs> development, really. <Man>. So <laughs> we've got a lot going on here. Started basically right after. Um, EU3 uh, launched back in December of 2010, and now finally here in 2023, we are, you know, many, many years into this game's systems being refined. And, you know, I feel I feel like a, a very lucky person coming into it at this point, because there's just so there's a, a wealth of things to explore in EU4 at this point. Oh, for sure. It's 10 years of polish. And um my goodness, I remember doing the tutorial for this game the first time and how much better <laughs> that's gotten um, just in terms of how they present the information. So many of the systems have changed, too, over the uh, over the years, like trade's been overhauled. Um, uh, Native American tribes have been overhauled. Um, all coalitions. Kinds of th- coalitions. Uh, coalitions were there at the beginning, uh, but technology. Technology was a huge kind of thing they uh changed up as well um it's getting to the point though where it's like that old eu4 my memories of that when it first came out almost blend into eu3 because i feel like they you know the game this game was a leap forward when they moved to four but also the decade of work they've put into it since has really shown yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, I'm I'm coming to it fresh uh, with fresh eyes here, and I can I can see the polish. Like, there's a lot of things that um, I see, and we'll talk about it more as we get into mechanics that just make a lot of sense to not have you deal with. Um, <laughs> you know, like um, I think a good example of this um, is the way that this game interacts with monarch points, and we we can go into that, but maybe we should set up a little bit about uh, what the nature of this game is. You know, I called it a grand strategy up top and you mentioned that it takes place primarily in Europe, but um, neither of those is necessarily true about the game more at large, right? No, it's definitely a kind of a global game now, uh, more so now than I think it was when EU2 came out. Um, Back then there were other global provinces and whatnot, global countries, because hey, Europe's gotta do colonialism during this time. You gotta send out, you know, Christopher Columbus and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, so you gotta have places to send them to. Um but they've put a lot of focus into fleshing out those other countries and other parts of the world. Uh but what is a grand strategy game? Like, um, I kind of think of Europa Universalis and the Total War series as the best exemplars of this. It's where you're playing on a gigantic map. You're trying to build up your city, your countries, and everything. Um, And kind of like civilization in that you are doing diplomacy with other people and you're, you know, doing allies and things like that. But I think um, my kind of dividing line between them is... 
I guess in Civ you kind of claim territory and build things up, whereas I tend to think of like grand strategy like, hey, it's all there already. You're sliding into one particular team, side, country, kingdom, what have you, and then you're playing as them within this already developed and claimed space. Yeah, I think what you're getting at the the differences between like the map painter in its full maximalist version, like the map painter meaning you are taking your color on the map and expanding it out as far as humanly possible. Uh, That is how I play Civilization most of the time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But in this game, as you've said, that's not necessarily always an option. Um, This game uh, does a really good job at sort of slotting you into um, a given nation or nation state's historical... um, Slot And it's kind of hard to be sort of the world-beating hegemon that takes over an entire region of geography, although it is definitely possible, um, as we'll talk about later. But I think, uh, to your point, this game is much more about the interplay between the nation-states than it is about becoming uh, the global hegemon, as as you might in uh, some of the more civvy-style games like this. Yeah, or even comparing it to Total War. Like, Total War has a much more involved battle system over here where things happen much more abstractly within uh, Europa Universalis. But this game isn't focusing on the battles. It's there and it's an important thing, but it really focuses on the diplomacy. Yeah, we might get into this later, but if we were to like distill the game's focus down into like one word, I suppose it would be the nation as opposed to the battles or as opposed to the conquest or as opposed to the people. Um, as you might with Victoria. So yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll probably talk more about that later. But I, you know, I think this game, you know, getting you into the historical context of a given nation, I think is really extremely well done. And for me, playing as a nation that you know something about really helps because you can either <laughs> anticipate things coming or understand what the hell they're talking about when it does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a person who doesn't know a ton about, um, you know, 1400s to 1800s European history, uh, that made me bad at this game, generally speaking. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, Portugal? Do they wade into the middle of Germany on a conquest expedition? Sure. Listen, there's a there's a big difference between knowing geography and knowing <laughs> historic <laughs> or history, you know. Um, well, this is definitely a game that frames itself within a historical context, and one of the you know, being an amateur history buff that I am, one of the things that I like about that is when you play as a country, especially one you know a little bit about. Uh, it sounded like it was Portugal for you; it was the Netherlands for me. Um, but you play a little, you know, you know a little bit about them, and then you get these historical events that occur. Whether it's a famous person who came around, like um, uh, there was a point in the game where the famous Dutch scholar Erasmus arrived, and it gave a little like, here's like two paragraphs about Erasmus, and you don't <laughs> have to read this if you don't want to, but you can. Here's some. You also get some bonuses because of that. That was always a nice kind of like, I don't know, it whetted my historical appetite. Well, I think the nice thing about that is when you see a historical event and then it maps mechanical things onto it if you understand that historical event it helps you understand what those mechanics mean um, mm-hmm. which is not to be underrated because it's very difficult to understand all the mechanics in this game <laughs> this game is famously difficult I'd say the the only game that had was tougher to learn how to play that we've done for the cast was Dwarf Fortress mm. 
I would be hard-pressed to determine which of these two was harder to learn for me. But now that uh, Dwarf Fortress has its commercial release with a parsable UI for uh, the layman, I may be revisiting that in the the nearish future. We'll see. (laughs) Oh, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. But yeah, so um, as we've talked about, there's a lot of different ways for you to um, conduct your grand strategy and uh, your nation. And uh, in a large way, this is with... um, the colonization versus trade versus military, or at least that was the triangle in my mind of, of ways to interact with your fellow nation states and the world at large. Um, maybe you have a perspective on that too. Oh, definitely. Um, I think one of the interesting things about this game is the way it kind of frames this uh, aggressive expansion kind of thing, the map painting. Um and one of the big things about this uh, that's different than Stellaris, which is another paradox game we played in Stellaris, every civilization starts off with a single planet. Um, in this game, you start off and you could be France, who is a gigantic country even back <laughs> then, or England. Um, you know, there's the great powers, uh, Spain or Castile back then, Austria, Ottomans, you know, the... Um, the big people who have gigantic countries. There are mid-tier countries that have several provinces. There are small, tiny little countries. And regardless of who you play, there's going to be people who want your shit. Um, they're going to want to take your land, whether they're, you know, if you're France and you're fighting with England, or you're like um, Munster fighting against um, County Cork or something like that. Um mm-hmm somebody is going to be wanting to take your stuff so that they are more secure against the people who are trying to take their stuff. And it's just this kind of like interstate warfare that tons of interesting interactions shake out from. Um, This isn't a game where you have to paint the map. It's kind of the default strategy for a lot of grand strategy games. Um, But even if you don't paint the map if you're like i'm not going to take a single province in this game which is a way some people play um even if you don't do that you really have to pay attention to the diplomacy system uh who who's friends with who who hates who who wants whose provinces um who is allied with who oh my neighbors next door who hate me you know they just got england on their side so i'm kind of boned if i don't buddy up with France here or do something so I don't just get steamrolled by them. Um, And it's just kind of like these systems they set up with allies and rivals and things like that where it really drives a lot of interaction in the game from a very kind of um, emergent perspective. And I think the real coup d'etat, pardon my uh, entendre there because I'm sure we're going to talk about other coup d'etats, but the real coup d'etat that this game um, pulls off (laughs) is the fact that the systems that it designs and uh, has you working in can equally apply to a superpower, as you mentioned, your France's or England's, or a conniving politician in a small kingdom like your um, various uh, European bloc countries making up the um, Holy Roman Empire or something like that, some of those Middle Middle or Eastern European um, small counties or duchies really um Mm -hmm. and you know if you're say venice like there is a historical context where unless you do make some powerful allies the ottomans will crush you um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know it's just one of those things where like um the the forces of history need to be counteracted by you and you as the player do have that sort of 
perspective and can sort of work some machinations to uh, create an ahistorical scenario, which can, as you said, lead to some really interesting outcomes. And the way this game systematizes all of this stuff is just endlessly fascinating from that perspective alone, um, you know, allowing you to um, see how the world may have played out if uh, so-and-so didn't get taken over or instead teamed up with this person. Yeah, and there's really interesting thing in that, um, like, say you're playing in Western Europe, I don't know, as Portugal, as Brian mm-hmm. does, um, <laughs> you play a few games and you might look over at Eastern Europe and see what's going on. You're like, okay, Lithuania is being Lithuania, but every once in a while there'll be something like where, um, uh, like us, Finland is going ham on those countries and they're becoming this huge force over there and what does that imply for the normal balance of powers between things or like oh Austria just got um they they just got inherited by their throne got inherited by France that's not good (laughs) for anything around here um so just the way these systems play out like they are interesting when the ui has to make decisions the ui ten or ui ai the ai tends to follow certain historical trends because that's where their countries are programmed to go but you always see surprises in uh well you play 700 hours and you know what to look for and you see surprises in how europe turns out yeah and i think um this this is interesting in a couple ways because as you mentioned the ai is pretty predictable in this game, not just because of history, but because it is, generally speaking, trying to do the same thing you are. It is acting in a very... It's acting as a rational actor, I suppose, uh, in most cases. And so you can see them start to, like, uh, create allies with people who are, say, maybe going to keep you from taking them over, uh, and things like that. Um, It's it's very interesting how the diplomacy works here. And as you mentioned, um, clicking around and checking the diplomatic relationships of all of your neighbors and keeping a, a close eye on that notification bay at the top of the screen as you know, alliances shift and coalitions are, are being built uh, to keep you from expanding for the most part. <laughs> um, at least when you're playing a large, uh, a, a large hegemon. Um, it's uh, interesting, but also like just shows that They've really put a lot of polish into the the way the AI works in this game, and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel artificial. It, it feels like a really well done simulation, I guess. I've never played another grand strategy game or strategy game even where I had to care about other people so much. Like whether I'm mm. doing Civ or Rise of Nations or whatnot, there's all the other diplomacy systems seem so um, so simple compared to this one. Like a uh, you start a game of EU up and I don't know, let's say you're being Brittany, a small tiny country off the coast of France. Um, and you know, France wants your territory. So what you got to do is look at France and look at who they hate and who hates them back. And then you're like, <laughs> Austria, you're going to be my buddy here. Um, and then Austria is going to want to try to protect you, not because you're the player, but because if they ally with you and help protect you, that's going to deny France the chance to grow. Uh, so Austria is calculating like, yeah, we'll be friendship of convenience right now, but it's enough to keep France off your back for a little bit. Yeah, and in some ways, uh, as you said, Josh, this this plays out in really organic ways. And in others, the game systematizes it very neatly uh, because uh, one very primary system in this game is uh, a system called rivalry, which allows you to basically choose um, 
countries that are at a similar power level to yourself and rival yourself against them, you know, causing you to um, uh, have, I guess, sort of a, a different sort of adversarial relationship, which gives you, I guess, bonuses and different options in, in how you deal with them. Uh, you probably have a better handle on what exactly rivaling someone does than I do, but that was my feel of it. <laughs> if you rival someone, you can take more provinces from them in a war for cheaper if you rival someone you can um, mess up with their trade and their economy and you get prestige for doing that uh, so if you choose a rival you get to make their life miserable and the game rewards you for that um, <laughs> the downside is that you know whoever you rival is likely to rival you back and if you share a border with a rival um, war is a matter of when not if yes and uh, in order to have a war, uh, what do you need? You need a cause uh, or a casus belli, as this game uh, <laughs> will Latinize for you. Mm-hmm. And um, what that means is, as, as, as you probably are already doing when you have a rival, you are spying on them. So you spy on your enemies, and uh, during the course of your espionage, you can fabricate claims and uh, determine that, oh, well, once upon a time, uh, my great-great-grandson's cousin... Um, or grandfather's cousin uh, was the lord of this area, and so rightfully it should come to me, or whatever the hell these people are trying to <laughs> give as a reason that they uh, own this this piece of land. And then you can uh, use that to go to war and claim that territory. And uh, as we said, uh, you can start that map painting in earnest uh, once the once the war declaration is made. So the interesting thing about how they do war, I think, is that um, in other games I've played, you can just take city after city after province after province when you're at war with someone. You conquer a city and it's just yours. Um, there's a much more civilized, quote-unquote, way to do war here. <laughs> um, where it's kind of like, if you go to war with someone, you need a reason to go with, to war with them. And actually, if you're rivals, the reason can be, we're rivals and I want to humiliate you. Um, you can't really take provinces then, but you get a whole lot of prestige and gold for doing that. Um, but maybe you want to take their pro- their property too, their land. You probably do. Um, you have a casus belli that says, you know, I have claims on this province, these provinces, and... If you're a large empire, even, um, like, say, you're Austria versus France or something, and Austria wins the war, you don't just, like, get France then. You get to have, like, five counties, countries, yeah. Off, yeah. five counties off of France. So France is smaller and you are larger, but it's not like they're gone at that point. Yeah, you're... you're prevented from overextending by taking smaller pieces and even that has a cost right like like you need to conquer um and then once you get those new areas they you know are relatively uh, fractious with regards to your larger nation until you do what's called coring them you turn them into a core province and that costs resources uh, namely monarch points um yeah i believe administrative power um is that correct that's right yeah there's three different uh, monarch point categories um administrative power, diplomatic power, and so, so uh, military power. Or as I explained to Brian, um, paper mana, bird mana, and sword mana. That's a resource you can do things with. Cast spells. France, you're now Austrian. Exactly. Boom. Um, and I like that. Like I think, I think monarch points are a really nice way to simplify some of the things that would have been controlled by really obtuse sliders in old games. 
Um, and it leads to, as I mentioned, with this sort of coring of provinces during a conquest, this um, cycle of conquering, consolidating, and then you rinse and repeat. Like you can't just core an entire country all at once or you'll overextend yourself and spiral into debt destruction and um, I guess just a bad time generally. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that's, I guess, maybe what you're getting at with the anti-blobbing, although there's probably a bunch of other systems in play as well. Oh, for sure. After you conquer a large amount of territory, your country's overextended, which is more prone to rebellions and unrest. Whether that's peasants rising up in the heartlands, or nobles sending cavalry armies after you, or separatist movements from your vast empire holdings, um, overextension just breeds discontent. Um, that's the internal stress that's placed on your country if you overextend. The external stuff, I thought, is... Maybe even like Europa Universalis's calling card as a series is the coalition. What happens here is if you're Austria and you're like, I'm going to take five countries out of France, then France and everybody who neighbors you starts to get a little nervous because you're that much more powerful now. And let's say you declare war in Switzerland and just absorb all of Switzerland then. Your neighbors start like taking notes here and they're they're starting to like think this is a really bad idea if you take too much too quickly what happens is a coalition forms against you which is outside of any alliance that might uh, occur so like people who are even rivals might form in a coalition against you and what happens is even if you're like a, a country that's i don't know uh takes up a third of the size of Europe. You have like the other two thirds of Europe against you who's Mm -hmm. go, they go to war and their only purpose is to break you into smaller parts because you're too big and you expanded too fast. I guess this is neatly summarized in um, a really interesting article that you sent me from a blog, a collection of unmitigated pedantry described (laughs) as the security dilemma, basically where whenever one state takes an action to make itself more secure, maybe taking a a neighbor's county and rendering them uh, more inert to them or raising an army and, you know, becoming battle ready, uh, all of the other states around them become less secure as a result of that action. (laughs) So, um, you know, it kind of makes sense. Uh, Wealth and power are not zero sum, but the actions and the security that they produce is zero sum. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. if one place is more secure, inherently someone else is less secure. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how they go about, I mean, this game, I do like its warfare system. Like, uh, you don't have to dive down to the tactical level of it like you do in, um, Total War all the time, which is fun, and that's the best part of Total War for sure. For sure, um, mm-hmm. but like, I don't. I remember playing Rome Total War, and at the end of the game, it's like, oh, it's another slave rebellion. <laughs> I mean, again, we what we're getting at is that that is that game's focus, though, right? I mean, they are that's interested true. in in the in the battles and the tactics uh, more so than. Um, I guess the strategy. There's a difference between strategy and tactics, and you know the the overarching aspect of one versus the um, very minute and uh, specific nature of the other. And this game does have strategy in the warfare. I think that's a good way to describe it, uh, because the way your armies move, their composition between infantry, cavalry, and um, artillery, the choices that you make in the game in terms of what uh, national ideas you pursue or what bonuses you might have to morale or discipline, um, how you choose to 
uh, keep your manpower supplies and reserves strong, like where you choose to develop your provinces. That all kind of leads into, and there's even like a bit of uh, maneuver warfare and trying to get the enemy to attack you while they cross a river or something like that in order to um, really like give them a lot of disadvantages in the combat. In fact, thinking of maneuver warfare, uh, the last game I played, I was doing another Dutch run and uh, I was in a war with England and I managed to get the, get England to put all of their armies on Ireland, chasing my kind of like mid-sized army around, which they wiped out. But then I blockaded the entire island and uh, I was able to just raffle stomp over London and everything <laughs> nearby it because they had nothing, nothing to protect it. So that was like maneuver strategy, that stuff. Right. That's tactics, right? Like that is as tactical as that game gets. Like in most games, that would be considered a grand strategy, which this game is. But uh, that is as tactical as, as it really comes in, yeah, in, sure, e, in EU4. Sure. And that is... <laughs> And, you know, and that's by design, like I think, and that's, that's a really good and uh, kind of hilarious example of, you know, using the game's um, strategic complexities uh, to, you know, execute a tactical uh, means of screwing with your opponent. Um, and I think the, the fact that, you know, it has all of these options for naval combat and, you know, blockades and transport, and, you know, as you mentioned, river crossings, like all of that is, um, is it's what you would consider grand strategy when you're talking about taking over a country, but it's also pretty tactical when you're talking about um, warfare on the level of kingdoms, uh, you know, a collection of kingdoms versus kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I often found myself on the on the wrong side of uh, better tactics or, or better strategy by my enemies or just um, being harried by my own internal poor management of my country because I am a noob at this game. But um, <laughs> I mean, poor man—it's not poor management. It's just you don't have a mental model of how everything works over yeah. here, which you know a lot of people back then didn't either. So you're okay. You're in good company. Yeah, that's true. Uh, me and the the brightest minds and the greatest kings of all of uh, Europa, uh, I guess, are in the same boat. So can't be too uh, too sad about that. Um, hmm. That being said, um, the other side of the coin from, from warfare is, of course, the economic aspects of your kingdom. Um, one, of course, generally leads to another. You know, you conquer more territory, you grow your economy. Uh, the, the best way to make your country more economically prosperous is simply to make it bigger in these times. However, there are other things you can do, other levers to pull, trade, namely. Yeah, trade is a good way to bring the money in. Um, They have, you know, as a game that's very focused on colonization or the period of time that covers colonization, a lot of these um, European countries are setting up mercantilist systems where they're trying to actively exploit the resources and everything of distant lands, um, bringing the raw materials, uh, and that's represented in this game by the trade system. There are trade nodes that kind of flow from the far reaches of the earth to Europe. Um, that's <laughs> unfortunately a hard coded thing in the game is that the direction is just, it's a single directional flow and it doesn't go other ways as well, but everything comes to Europe eventually. And as a strong trading nation, you can ensure that more of the trade goods, um, 
flow along those routes instead of being uh, instead of stopping to benefit the local countries nearby there. So if you have some good colonies, you have a, some good trade fleets that really increases the amount of goods that flow back to we, where you are making bank off of them. So that's interesting. You you mentioned that you can trade, you can steer trade within the series of trade notes that represent greater Europe, I suppose, but there's no way to like pull a Chicago and reverse the flow of the river um, so that trade <laughs> flows the other direction in this, in, in Europa Universalis 4, correct? Yeah, there's no way to outright reverse things. There are things where like, um, uh, like there's, they've added some additional trade flows where like if you are playing as Japan, uh, the Philippines is normally, it started off uh, downstream of you, so there's no way to, like, establish colonies in the Phil- Philippines or conquer anything there and have that trade be- benefit your home base. Uh, but they've added some things where you can go to the um, the Pacific Islands. I think there's a trade node in Hawaii um, hmm. that can then go back to Japan over there. So they've added some additional trade flows, but it's still everything eventually points towards Europe. It's Eurocentric. And, you know, the game, it's in the name. So I guess you can expect that. Um, although it does, I guess, pres- present a one-dimensional view of history, or a history, as it might be. Uh, maybe in EU5, we'll delve further into the ahistorical aspects of reversing the flow of trade to other parts of the world. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But that being said, I think the nice thing that I found about trade as a system in this game is that um, it was very interactable. You know, sometimes I, I feel like with something like a sieve, um, you know, if you get a trade ship and you say, all right, just go trade with this person. It doesn't matter whether they're your enemy, your friend, what have you. You're just going to get resources from it. The resources are exact. You know what you're going to get in this game. Not only can um, all the political implications of trade uh, very much manifest themselves on your returns, but also um, you can use ships to guard or attack a a given trade route, which causes all kinds of mayhem and can definitely affect um, the efficacy of a given trade node or even steer trade into an entirely different node if um, things get messed up enough around uh, blockades and attacks, piracy, things of that nature. Oh, for sure. If you have a rival that's downstream of you, you can sponsor. You can send some ships out to just pirate the hell out of them, uh, which really brings down the value of the trade they're bringing in. Um, one of the expansions has something called treasure fleets, where if you have gold-producing colonies in the New World, then um, once a certain threshold of gold has been met, uh, it'll send a treasure fleet from, you know, I don't know, Caribbean back to Spain or what have you. And that treasure fleet is an opportunity, a target of opportunity for other nations who are looking to make a quick hundred ducats or so. <laughs> hey, who's not looking to make a quick hundred ducats? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I that, that, that I thought was very fun. And I, I like that you sort of see the immediate impacts of it. There are very few things in a grand strategy game where you can, you know, direct a, a, a unit towards a place and see immediate impacts or, you know, shift a slider and, and see some immediate impacts. But trade in this game is one of them. And I appreciated that. 
Not only can trade be very specific and actionable, it can also be very obtuse as well. It's a very deeply <laughs> simulated kind of thing. Like every province in the world produces goods of one type or another. Um, and, you know, wine is going to be more expensive than fish, let's say, or gems, definitely more expensive than fish. Um, but these goods, uh, you know, you want to find the high producing trade nodes where all the gem and the gold and the silver comes from or the tea, the spices, all the stuff that, you know, was traditionally a high value trade good and kind of direct that to where you are going. I thought another interesting thing, again, from the history sort of thing is there are events that change the price of uh, goods uh, for good in the game. Um hmm. And there'll be things like, uh, I think the first one is when the Ottomans discover artillery, it, uh, they're, they're creating uh, bronze cannons. So the price of copper increases by 50% because they're like, oh, we want more cannons now. So there'll be ways that the um, price of goods and thus the trade networks shift and change. Um, and what might have been a very valuable node before becomes less valuable because the goods that it's producing are less valuable now. Yeah, that's interesting. So you could kind of trigger, I guess you could think of this as in a more modern context, like a gold rush. Uh, the copper rush uh, was <laughs> something that would definitely sort of shape the landscape of a particular place with uh, rich copper mining um, resources. Um, to that end, once you are finally through with your trade and or rather your trade has yielded you a great deal of riches uh, you bring it back home and what do you do uh, you build up your empire you develop it into um, you know a uh, I guess you could think of this as building tall rather than wide right you are uh, starting to build up your key uh, core imperial nodes and zones uh, to make sure that they are producing the most possible they can for your empire um, thinking of upgrading uh, cities with additional buildings and um, things that will uh, net you much greater, I guess, riches and stability over time. What's interesting is that all the money you make from a trading empire, um, it can be put to good use. You can build buildings, um, really increase the power of your countries, but the more powerful way to increase this is by increasing their development, so to speak, um, which this uses some of that mana from before those monarch points to either increase the tax base, the trade power, or the manpower base of a um, province or county. Um, so this is a easy thing to do, a good thing to do, especially another big use for these monarch points is researching technology and choosing ideas, but you might be like, ahead of time technologically speaking so the tech is more expensive to research you could you know you could get a gunpowder cannons two years early or you could wait a year get it for the same price and also make your uh, provinces more powerful in the meantime right. um, so it's a very powerful thing to do although as powerful as it is I'll also say that I think that Developing a province this way to add more tax or manpower to your empire is about five to six times as expensive as conquering and coring uh, somebody mm -hmm. else's province. So that's another mm -hmm. kind of inducement for this chaotic warfare that goes on in consolidation. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the line I said earlier. The best way to add to your empire's bottom line is simply by making it bigger. 
Um. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, playing wide, so to speak, is definitely the, I guess, the standard grand strategy way to do things, paint the map and everything. Although this game does offer other ways to play in a more interesting way than I've seen from other grand strategy games. Yeah, I, th- I think that's interesting. And, w- and one of those ways, is, as we mentioned earlier, was colonization. Um, you know, uh, and I think this game does a really interesting thing with colonization in that, um, you know, it may be more easy to come by from your Portugal's or your Spain's, uh, England, etc. But um, you can have a game where you're colonizing Canada with Poland or Denmark. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's kind of fun. <laughs> Even more so than that, uh, there was a trade or there was a game that I got where I colonized the coast of South America as Japan. <laughs> Wait, the the western coast? The western coast, yeah. Yeah, that make, that makes sense. So you you had the um the Jap- the Japan Chile Empire or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there was a trade node that I could take advantage of somehow doing that too. Like a way to get the money back to my country, which was which was good to do. Um but that kind of points out another advantage that the historical player will have playing the historical game is that you know what's there. You're like, oh, look, California, nobody's there. Gold, money, oh, the <laughs> mountains of Peru. I'll take those. Don't mind if I do. Um, exactly. There's a really interesting option when you are starting to play a game where you can have a randomized new world where you don't know like that you're going to hit landfall fall on Cuba right here. There could be any kind of landmass. There could be nothing where North America is. And you have to explore and kind of discover it on your own. What was the name of that expansion? I, I can't remember for the life of me, but um, I know there's a specific DLC that, that brought that in. Um, Maybe Conquest of Paradise? That's right. That's what it was. Conquest of Paradise. That's correct. If anybody hears this podcast and they're looking to get into the game, uh, there are certain there are a lot of DLC here, and the community has strong opinions on which ones are needed and valuable and which ones are not. So just take a look over there and read some people's reviews of them if you're looking to get into the DLC game. This game and its DLC are often on sale, so you can come across a a bundle where you're picking up like a, a very core set of DLC for a pretty good price and you're getting a lot of additional features uh, that you can add in and, and take out as you you see fit. But I think an important thing about this game's DLC and sort of the Paradox model in general is even if you're not playing um, with DLC, they use DLC to upgrade the vanilla version of the game, right? Basically DLC funds development of the core product. Um, so even if you're not necessarily buying every piece of DLC, you are benefiting from um, tangential enhancements to the core system that would come along with that DLC, um, just maybe not to the extent that the DLC includes. This is the same as we mentioned in Stellaris, right? Like version 3.0 came out, corresponded with X DLC, and it added a bunch of new features, but the DLC took those and enhanced them even further. And I think that's broadly speaking how it works with EU4 too, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, for sure. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example within EU4. I'm thinking of Crusader Kings, though. Like, there was an expansion pack, a DLC, that introduced Merchant Republics as a government type to the game. So, like, Venice or whatnot uh, became a... They had their own special rules and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Good Stellaris one. Um, But... 
if you bought the DLC, you could play as the new government type. If you didn't, they were still added to your game for free. Uh, so there, when there's a new content or a new DLC for the game, you're going to get something whether you buy the DLC or not. Yeah, I'm thinking about like uh, Instellaris, like several core mechanics were added um, in the run up to DLC and then um, DLC added a bunch of content on the back of that that sort of built upon those systems that were introduced as part of the patch uh, for that upgrade. So, yeah, I think this is sort of a, a paradox. This is Paradox's trick, right? Like they support their games to hell and back and they do so by selling DLC that supports it or, you know, that expands it even further. Mm-hmm. It's a cool system, but um uh, before we go even deeper into that, we should continue, or we should finish talking about the actual game. And maybe uh, by doing that, maybe let's talk a little bit about our our countries that we we played as, and some some of the ways that that affects how you're interacting with the game. Uh, for me, one thing that I found really helpful was the uh, the concept of national ideas. Basically, to me, this was like little missions that the game sort of used to point you in the right direction for how to play as a given nation. Um, and as someone who didn't know jack shit about most of the nations I was playing as, this was very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the mission system they have is really good at kind of like, hey, what should I be doing as X? Or how should I be playing as a merchant republic versus a, I don't know, um, Islamic empire or something like that. Uh, so it gives some good ways to go through and do things. Um, Natural the missions, mission, that's what it yeah. is, yeah. Besides the missions, there's also these uh, this idea of ideas, and these would be kind of like um, specific bonuses and upgrades that you could get uh, both from a generic set that's available to everybody, and as you collect more of these ideas, it's more specific uh, country bonuses that kind of like you know, the Dutch get pushed to being a trading sort of empire. They get uh, good things to go along with that. Yeah, the use of these missions and objectives to drive gameplay makes a lot of sense. Like, you get prestige and rewards. Um, They basically function as like a light tutorial for a given nation, uh, assuming you know how to do anything at all in the first place. Um, But um, the national missions, to my mind, sort of give you this aim to shoot for, and it kind of mirrors what it would happen historically. And also it's what the AI is setting out to do. So you can look at a, a nation's national missions and have an idea of what the AI might be trying to do at any given time. It helps you determine what to, to do or why things are the way they are, or perhaps why they're going so horribly wrong in cases. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got you. It's a, it's a great, great thing to do with that. On the topic of things going horribly wrong, unrest and rebellion <laughs> yes i uh frequently experienced this i played a, a game as england uh, as you know you know the, the war of the roses you have all kinds of unrest and um i guess throne seeking wars of succession this happens in in many different places that's a very high profile one the one i just mentioned but um you know you're going to have uh factions within any nation that are not happy that you're the one on the throne and you know eventually maybe they'll take you over and the nice thing about eu4 is since you are the spirit of the nation so to speak you'll just become that guy if he takes over and and usurps you (laughs) oh honestly uh the game i just played as the dutch um uh, you know was a monarchy back at that point and uh the my my ruler was so terrible like in terms of monarch points i think he was like a zero one one 
that there was a noble rebellion seeking to install a pretender on the throne. And I'm like, hell yes. Let's roll out the red carpet for this guy. Get this weak-ass king off my throne. So you, like, soft abdicated. You just, like, marched him out to the the guillotine, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much. I love it. Uh, that's, but besides that's the right um, besides the nobles who can you know the internal country factions who can rise up against you, I also love in this game that uh, there are separatist movements as well. So if you have a large empire that's conquered a lot of territory, especially if you're overextended, that or you're at war or you've been at war for so long and your armies are weakened. Um, there'll be different nationalist kind of movements that are like, hey, uh, we think that Ireland should not be part of Great Britain. And they'll (laughs) raise armies, and if you don't put them down, then um, Ireland breaks off, and now they're their own country. And that's another one of the ways they kind of do this anti-blobbing things. You don't just have a city where you can count on having it until you hear otherwise. Right, yeah, until someone takes it from you. Um, yeah, that that's absolutely true. And, you know, there are systems in, you know, I'm going to keep making this uh, comparison because it's the property I'm more familiar with, but in Civ, you know, um, mm-hmm. there will be ways for, uh, con- you know, conquered territories to revolt or conquered cities to revolt against you based on the loyalty they have to their former owners. But it's just, I feel like it's just rendered at such a much higher and more realistic resolution in EU4 uh, with so many more factors contributing to it that it is almost incomparable Um, and the unrest and rebellion that you're dealing with in in EU4 comes from such a richer historical context and you know we're going for different things between these two games so it's almost not worth Mm -hmm. comparing them Um, but at the end of the day I, I really found it interesting to sort of see how these historical rebellions played out to the person who um, you are acting as uh, on the throne, which was very entertaining. So we talked about some country-specific sort of systems going on there, and they have a whole bunch of those, but they also have these kind of like larger systems going on as well uh, that kind of affect multiple countries or even continents. Um, Probably the prototypical example of this is the Holy Roman Empire mechanic, which is always a fun game to play because it's just bonkers in there, the diplomacy. It's like diplomacy (laughs) jacked up to 11. Yeah, it's it's so funny that we the whole time we've been talking about um, the way that your uh, country or nation interacts with other nations, but we totally forgot about these entire other things that they have to relate to, such as uh, the Holy Roman Empire or the papacy. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, like the Pope is uh, a big player, turns out, in these parts. Especially at the beginning of the game when all of Europe is more or less Catholic. Um, mm. Like, if the Pope excommunicates you as a country, if they excommunicate your king, Anybody can declare war on you without losing any... They don't need to cost a spelly. They don't need lose any stability or anything that happens when you uh, normally don't have that. And they can just, like, take shit from you. So it's not a good place to be in. You gotta, like, suck up to the Pope a lot at the beginning. 
Yeah, and one thing I found out the hard way is that if you are excommunicated or are no longer Catholic considered, or you know your nation is no longer Catholic, uh, you no longer uh, have the ability to uh, marry off your king or your uh, children to other uh, uh, nations' children of the same religion. Like you cannot uh, have an interreligious marriage in this game if you are a, a kingdom. <laughs> Um, which is unfortunate because it uh, it definitely screwed uh, several things over for me at one point or another. Surprise! <laughs> Reformation yeah. surprise. Yeah, these uh, you know, all of the things that you need to consider from uh, religion to diplomacy, like the and succession, all of these uh, aspects can find a way to bite you in the ass with regards to how you're shepherding your nation through history. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, the the papacy definitely. Uh, boned me on more than one occasion europe starts off definitely in the clutches of the papacy um in a lot of ways you know temporal power never good for any religious heads um but as time goes on you do get the protestant reformation both Mm. with regular protestants uh you get the reformed protestants Uh, And I think the Anglican Church often breaks off as well in each of these religions, including Catholicism, uh, but they all have their own bonuses, but you can choose to switch over to the new religion. Um, When the Protestant Reformation or a new religion first appears, it creates something called a center of reformation within Europe, which will convert the nearby provinces, uh, Mm. including yours, whether or not you want it to. Um, And this is a big deal in the Holy Roman Empire, the aforementioned Holy Roman Empire, um, because the emperor wants to keep things Catholic, uh, but the rapidly increasing number of Protestant states do not. And there's actually a really big event uh, that mimics the Thirty Years' War in Europe, um, but in EU terms is called the League War, where there'll be a Catholic League against a Protestant Evangelical Union. Um, And you don't actually need to have any particular religion to join either side, uh, because a lot of the outside power players, England, France, Spain, Ottomans, Russians, they'll get in on the action to either support or try to, like, break Austria into a billion different little pieces. Now, do you think they did that because if they automatically always had Protestants versus Catholics, it would often end up a little lopsided? And this was this like a balancing play that they changed it to a league war rather than a Protestant Reformation situation? A historically accurate balancing play. Um, Catholic France supported the Protestant League in the actual Thirty Years' War. Uh, mm-hmm. Protestant Denmark actually fought on both sides of the league. Hmm. Interesting. So, so this, really... this was all very like real politic here, as opposed to which religion you'd support. Got it. Yeah. So it was a uh, yeah uh, alignment with interests first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Very interesting. And yeah, there's you know there's these large scale systems we've talked about the Eurocentric ones, the papacy, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. But there are of course um, I mentioned earlier on in the podcast the Celestial Throne over in China. Um, you know the uh, ascension to um, uh, being the the emperor of China is very much a big uh, goal if you are playing over in the Ming Dynasty or anything else in the in the Far East. 
and uh, there's also like the shogunate in Japan. Uh, you probably you said you played as Japan at one point, Josh. I, I have not delved into that, but um, is that sort of a similar situation? Uh, I don't remember particularly what they had. They did have something for that. Uh, the Emperor of China, the uh, Celestial Throne, is also an interesting mechanic, I think, to take a look at because it tries to model the kind of historical circumstances that befell China at the time, how there was like a implosion of warlords going on and everything. And mm-hmm. they're able to kind of encourage this through the game's mechanics uh, by having like a tributary system. You could be a tributary of the Celestial Throne uh, and tributaries could attack each other, but they were kind of like protected by China from outside threats. But if China ever gets weak, then the tributaries are like little jackals and they're like, finally, we can break three. Let's everybody declare war on them at once. Uh, so it's a kind of like another example of using embedding history within the mechanics or embedding these historical circumstances within the mechanics. Yeah, and as I understand it, there's even more of that going on over in the New World. There's, you know, a whole tribal league going on with uh, the New World, um, mm-hmm. Native American tribes, things of that nation, um, things of that nature, rather. And um, it's, uh, there's honestly just more here than I think I could ever play. Maybe if I had, I don't know, seven, eight hundred hours to devote to the game, I might be able to scratch the surface. <laughs> mm. Oh, we were talking about the... Uh talking about the dlc before i tell you my preferred strategy for this game is um i'm like hey i'm in the mood for another game of eu4 let's see what dlc they've come out with since i've last played that mm. looks good oh look the uh rule britannia uh dlc focuses on england i i'll play as england and go through and see what that's like experience mm. the new systems and everything new there and it's you know giving more money for the support of the game and development of the game and everything Um, but you really can play like each of the DLC is really interesting because it really brings new twists on the mechanics or new events or new something or other uh, to really kind of like it it helps the games feel fresh yeah I, I, I really appreciate this about the way that Paradox does these games because they know they have an audience that loves these types of grand strategy games and what they want more than anything that audience is um novelty in how things play out in the various systems and how do you introduce novelty to someone who's put you know a thousand hours into their system uh well you continue to add more things into that system and or add systems into that set of systems you know there's (laughs) um that i i just um i really appreciate the idea of like this labor of of love and um, supporting a game to uh, an extent that almost no other developer in the industry is doing, right? Like, the only other people I would say are on the level of support that Paradox is with these grand strategy games are literal live service games, <laughs> you know? Like, you're... <laughs> and that is an entirely different arena. Um, so it's it's pretty impressive, you know? They, they kind of are riding the line between traditional um, marketed product, grand strategy game, and a live service game. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll say, too, in terms of like coming back to play a new game and look for the novelty here, uh, this is a game that supports a wide variety of play styles. And I think one of the ways they one of the things they do to support that is they have these bonkers achievements that you can shoot for. And this is like 
my platonic example of what achievements should be in a game. There are ways to guide your play style or goals for you to achieve that you'd probably never do on mm-hmm. your own. Um, there's there's um, just some really crazy ones. There's easy ones like, oh, have a royal marriage or become the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, but there's other things like... Um, conquer all of Africa as Congo and keep the European colonizers out or um, as the salt as the sultanate of rum uh, have cores in Rome and Jerusalem and Moscow uh, <laughs> and rum was like a tiny minor Ottoman state and things like that so it's like you can scroll through the list of achievements and be like oh this sounds interesting um like yeah. <laughs> uh, this one called norwegian wood which is as norway own every single province in the world that creates wood as a trade good <laughs> so basically you're front running ikea at that point <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's like hey let's spend uh the next 30 hours of the game working for this pun here but i appreciate that no i like that I, and to your point i agree with the idea of achievements as uh, gameplay conceit rather than something that just pops up at the bottom of your screen when you complete a chapter or something like that. Like that is the most annoying and rote way to do achievements. And honestly, most of the time for me, disruptive, like you get to this, the end of the game or a very important, um, you know, event occurs on screen. And instead of like basking in that moment, you see a little annoying blink at the bottom of the screen. Uh, that just happened or whatever the fuck they're calling their achievement. <laughs> and um, that just sucks. I, I think you, it should be, if you're going to have an achievement system, it should be driving you towards something that is an actual achievement, not just playing the game as it's meant to be played. <laughs> yeah. Although I will say with the, um, with the, those kind of like automatic achievements you get along the way. I do know some game devs who use them as a kind of low-key analytics kind of thing. Like, hmm. I know people who put an uh, achievement in for completing the tutorial. And <laughs> what they're really doing, they're, they're, not, they're not trying to see if the tutorial's too hard or anything. They're trying to see, like, out of the people who bought the game, who's installed it and put five minutes into it. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Um only about 80% of players, believe it or not. <laughs> well, speaking from uh, your own experience there. <laughs> um, not my own, but, you know, talking with others. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's interesting. And if that's the easiest way to implement such a system or uh, method for, you know, getting feedback and analytics in that way, go for, go with God. I think that's perfectly fine. But what I'm saying is when, like, a AAA game yeah. and has <laughs> achievements and its only achievements are... Um, you know, complete chapter one, complete chapter two, complete the game or whatever. I'm not interested. I will, I will turn that off. Um, mm-hmm. I would rather not have those notifications pop up. Thank you very much. No matter how clever the puns on your, uh, your achievements are. <laughs> <laughs> Looking over a quick list of the EU, um, the eu achievements here and there's um one for if you start off as a minor indian province for conquering all of germany which Mm. definitely leads if you're like i'm doing this you definitely need a strategy for that yeah Uh, yeah. fun stuff here (laughs) (laughs) i would say so (laughs) that's wild 
One thing I really liked in this game was its technology system. Uh, technologies were, I think you go through from level 1 through level 32 by spending monarch points on them. Um, and that's, you know, pretty standard stuff. I feel nothing really innovative there. You get powers, you get new abilities, whatever. Um, sure. But what I really liked was the institutions system that they had. And this was a kind of a way to, um, it did a lot of things, but kind of model the technological advantage that Europe gained over these four centuries without hard coding it to a particular value or region of the map. Um, and basically what that is is like, um, I don't know, the Renaissance starts. The printing press. The printing press, enlightenment, uh, global trade, cl- uh, the new world, colonization, uh, whatever. Um, but these these uh, institutions will choose a home um, almost always somewhere in Europe because Europe um, <laughs> but the institutions will spread to neighboring provinces and right. once you have this institution in enough of your provinces your country embraces the institution if you don't have an institution brace embraced then uh, the cost of technologies greatly increases yeah so it, it- uh, it pays to sort of engender the embracement of, of such technologies, or hopefully they are uh, coming up in a place that you are uh, very local to, so that you can have. Uh, and as I understand it, Josh, you know, I, I didn't fully grasp how these things were broadly adopted, but once a certain critical mass of your uh, territories embraces a given institution, it's sort of um, effective throughout your your empire. Is that basically how it works? That's right. You get a bonus for embracing the institution, um, depending on what percentage of your country has, uh, like each province embraces it individually. Um, so if you have, uh, you can, if you don't, if you have like 90% of your provinces embracing it, you can pay some extra money and then you just cross the finish line. Um, Mm -hmm. and have the whole institution, but these things spread locally and like the reasons for it to increase in a particular province is very specific to each institution. For example, um, the uh, colonialism institution. Uh, if you have a colony in the New World, or you have a colony elsewhere, uh, then any port in your home country gets a certain increase per month in order to um, in increasing that institution. I thought it was a pretty like cool way to show how technology spreads uh, yeah. as opposed to like the, you know, civ tech tree sort of thing. Exactly. And, you know, this game does have its own sort of civ tech tree, you know, ideas. Uh, generally speaking, ideas, as you said, they get cheaper as um, time progresses, which makes sense because more people are embracing them. But this is an entirely new level. This is sort of a geographically um, rigorous model of technological spread which is different than sort of the chronological based one that ideas represent yeah i think the thing i like about it is it shows that technology is spreading for reasons other than like the state says hey printing Hmm. press let me get in on that it's like well do you have urbanized provinces or are they interested in the technology which is a cool thing um and something that it removed the need for perhaps unfortunately uh was that even in this game you have um tech bonuses and tech penalties 
um, for being ahead of time, you get tech penalties. If you are behind the eight ball, technologically speaking, if your neighbors are more hmm. technologically advanced than you are, then you get a bonus to like researching the technology. Sure. You know, you're like, hey, look at those guys over there. They're using gunpowder. Maybe we should look into that, too. Um, there was a pretty funny thing in um, EU 2 and 3. Where if you were playing as a Eastern Asian country, um, you know, Ming, particularly like China, um, one of the powerful strategies you would do would be, it was called the Tentacle of Knowledge. And what you did was you conquered provinces one by one, extending your provinces from China all the way across Asia to Europe where you could be neighbors and buddy-buddy with uh, somebody who's more technologically advanced than you are so that you wouldn't fall so far behind. But just (laughs) some of the maps that this produced, it was like, here's China, and here's like a thin strand of China reaching out, trying to grab the knowledge of Europe from this. (laughs) So I guess what we're saying is this is a more organic way than uh, creating a tentacle of knowledge for these types of institutions to spread. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't help you much with that, yeah. Which, it's something I'm okay with how they're doing it, uh, but I'll miss it a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's a funny gameplay conceit, like Gandhi launching nukes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you heard the story of why he does that? I don't know if we do yeah. a Civ podcast soon. We, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think we'll do a Civ podcast soon. But um, we can, we can relay that story. My understanding is that in the original Civ, uh, Gandhi was known for uh, betraying his pacifist roots and uh, launching nukes on a moment's notice because. Um, his aggressiveness would eventually go down so low that it would revert uh, down from zero to the highest level, which is, uh, I guess, eight or something like that. And all of a sudden, he would be the most aggressive ruler possible and immediately launch a nuke at his enemies. (laughs) So what happened is um, in programming, there's two ways to represent a number. Let's say you have eight bits to represent a number, the eight bits in a byte, and a bit can be a zero or a one. Um, You can either say, I'm going to represent all the values between negative 127 and 128, or you can say, I'm going to represent all the values between 0 and 255. And those are kind of called signed integers and unsigned integers, uh, respectively. Um, So in civilization, the aggressiveness value was an unsigned int Uh, but there was a bug in the game where when the pacifism technology was researched it would subtract two from the civilization's aggressiveness Uh, gandhi started off at one so one minus two in the world of signed ints is then negative one which is you know not very aggressive at all um because of the way numbers are stored in the unsigned ints one minus two is 255 which means nukes 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 (laughs) yes you immediately go from uh, gandhi to hitler Um, (laughs) so yeah uh fun fun old school 4x stories uh with gandhi i'm sure well like civilization uh europa universalis Paradox Interactive in general have gone through a lot of different games. I think we alluded to this kind of like chronological order of the series before. You can have a Mm -hmm. Crusader Kings game 
where you take the save at the end of that and you bring it into Europa Universalis, which takes place immediately after. You can take EU and port it into Vic, uh, Victoria and the take Victoria into Hearts of Iron. Each of these games has a different perspective on the way countries work. Um, like Crusader Kings is much more focused on personal relationships. Uh, Victoria is much more concerned with the population of the country, the people, rather than the land. Uh, EU is all about the state and the land it possesses. Um, but it's kind of interesting because these are, in some ways, the dominant narrat- historical narratives of the time always find that really interesting that not only are they rooted in a specific chronology, but also they're rooted in a specific view of history as a series. And um, they don't change that over time. Like Crusader Kings 2 is still concerned with the same time period as Crusader Kings 3, EU 3, 4, etc. And they're using the evolution of the series to get at a greater resolution or a different way of representing a given time period, focusing on the same historical framing. And uh, as you mentioned, going from one historical framing to another from age to age, say from Crusader Kings up to the 1400s, and then in Europa Universalis from uh, the 1444 through the Napoleonic era into you know early industrialization is pretty fascinating. And uh, as you mentioned, Victoria from there on into you know fully embracing industrialization and the population of the, the countries in question is really cool. I think. They're doing something really neat here with regards to how they're looking at history across these eras. And I often wondered what it would look like if they mashed them up. Like, what does it look like if you do the uh, Victoria framing in um, Crusader Kings, for instance? And and I guess the answer is Pentiment. Um, (laughs) uh, But maybe I need to play Pentiment first before I make that claim. We should do that when I've heard good things about it. Yeah, agreed. But besides this kind of like series by series sort of thing, they also have the sequel by sequel. And one direction that I've kind of seen consistently in their properties um, is that each of these sequels gets better and better. Um, And it's weird. It's not like you're playing like, you know, NBA 2K22 versus NBA 2K21. Like, this is the same time period over and over again, but I feel they get better ways to express it. And they lean more heavily into a um, more open simulation way. Like, there's less railroading. I, I remember playing EU2 and the great powers had tons of great events like lots of things break their way um Mm. whereas eu4 um you know the great powers still have things going for them but there's a lot more chance to kind of usurp that playing as a smaller power um things happen because of the circumstances that the countries are in rather than them being the countries that they are which i think is really cool from a when you're trying to play the counterfactual history sort of thing. Yeah, you know, greater computing power, greater technology, and also like just this team continuing to refine the way that they represent history as a series of systems rather than just scripted events. Um, you know, yeah. you're going to get that. And it's it's only going to get better from here, I suppose. Uh, uh, EU5 TBD. <laughs> hmm. no, I think that's my... The direction I'm saying is that the historical circumstances are getting more embedded in the mechanics, which is pretty 
great. Pretty fantastic. I mean, that that's the mission, right? Like, uh, as long as that continues, and I would say these these games and their their overarching um, mission statement are success. And with that, uh, let's give our statements on Europa Universalis 4 with a three-word review. My three-word review is Historical Guided Tour. Playing Europa Universalis 4 was a unique experience in that it was a largely self-paced and self-directed experience for me. Whether it was 15 minutes of diplomatic tinkering or three hours of strategic war-making, each session was self-contained and often left me with an interesting inkling or an epic saga about my chosen nation. I often felt I was being provided a bit of a self-guided tour of the various historical and ahistorical aspects of the world during the game's 400-year time span. Speaking of time, it is my opinion that Paradox games make the best case for waiting to play a game years later rather than playing it at launch. You may have to drink from the fire hose for a bit as you catch up on a literal decade of system design, but you are getting a product that is vastly superior in terms of balance, stability, and refinement, not to mention price. If you have a friend that's been there for the entire long journey to the present and can get you caught up to speed quickly, that is the cherry on top. I enjoyed my historical guided tour with Europa Universalis 4, but as with other Paradox games I've played, I still feel like I lack the experience to fully embrace its complexities. Alright, my three-word review is By Other Means. Having played a fair number of grand strategy games, I've come to appreciate the Europa Universalis games for deftly solving some persistent problems in the genre. As the genre is almost implicitly founded on warfare and strategy, you run into problems with these games when you are too successful. Once you are the largest gorilla in the jungle, the game loses much of their enjoyability. Warfare is no longer challenging as you can steamroll any of your unconquered neighbors with ease, and there is rarely much to do outside of warfare. Not so with EU. The game's rich diplomacy system is what initially drew me into the game, and you will find yourself quite busy outside of the typical march of conquest, balancing allies and rivals against each other while developing your country and perhaps engaging in a little light colonialism on the side. The problem of bigness is farther handled by the coalition system that prevents any steamrolling in the first place. Finally, the variety of sizes of countries that you can play as, combined with a wealth of fun achievements to pursue, gives you a reason to start off as a small fish in a brutal and unforgiving pond. More than anything else, that interesting diplomacy, the achievements, and the continued development of this game over the past decade has kept me coming back for hundreds of hours. To misquote Klausowitz, diplomacy is just a war by other means. Well stated. And, um, you know, I think we, I I learned a lot playing this game. Uh, You probably uh, learn a lot every time you play it, Josh, but, uh, you know, maybe less so this time, uh, you know, the X number of time than than originally. (laughs) Anyway, with that, we want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on making history.
so I'm a little curious um, for you. You've played the game for 20, 30 hours, a respectable amount of time. I mean, <laughs> people play it for more, but... Um, Do they? <laughs> I'm wondering if you feel like you get the game now. I remember we tried to play this maybe three or four years ago, and it's a learning cliff you stumble off of over here. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying like you understand what's going on in the game, but do you get it? Do you feel like that's enough time to do that? Yeah, I, I alluded to this in my three word, but I feel like I understand what the game is going for and I appreciate it for that. And I, I know enough to be dangerous in terms of like interacting with this, its systems, but I do feel like there's still um, a difficulty cliff or a complexity wall that I am banging my head against a little bit with this one as compared to Stellaris which by the end of I guess the 30 or so hours I put into that one I felt like I was pretty well versed like I could hold my own uh, there wasn't anything that was just a big um, sort of unknown unknown to me whereas I think there's a lot of unknown unknowns in EU4 still for me and mm-hmm. I think that's because, like, I spent most of my time in the Eurocentric portion of the game, and there are so many systems that just don't exist there. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, excuse me, too, that this game's perspective is like a nation uh, state, um, you know, view of the world is, I, I guess, just a, a, a lot different than maybe what you might see in another sort of more abstract 4x game so that learning curve alone is something you need to surmount before you fully understand what's going on with eu4 i think one of the interesting things about this game and um one of the games i'm hoping to make in the next year or so is a sort of like tiny distilled version of eu um Mm. but that you have starting nations of different sizes in some ways, it's like a letting the player select their difficulty. Um, but in some ways, like the larger nations are more complicated than the smaller ones. Like um, when I played my most recent Dutch run, I started off as Holland, a vassal of Burgundy. And I played the game on fast forward for the first century because I knew... I was waiting for Burgundy to get weak, and I didn't have to make many decisions until then. Um, mm. So I think I got through like the first hundred years in maybe like an hour or two. Huh. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. If, if you know you're protected and you just kind of have to manage the status quo until your opportunity comes, that is a perfectly viable way to play this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, but again, it's like I have the knowledge of the game and everything too. I was able to skip ahead like that um that could be a tremendously boring game if you did not have that knowledge (laughs) very much so very much so Um, but i I do think it's that kind of like variety of small to large countries that are around you like if you're a large country you swallow the fish around you but you can play a hard you can choose to play a hard game by being a small country and like Hmm. really having to know like master the systems in order to get things going. I think that's um not something I've seen in other games. Yeah, it's it's definitely different and I think the thing that EU4 has going for it is that you can see a specific 
nation at a specific time and think, wow, that must have been a really interesting time in that nation's history. And you can create a game that starts during that year for that country and play as it. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't have to do what you did, which is press fast forward for 100 years. You could have just as easily started the game during the year you wanted to start it. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's true. Uh, the Netherlands rebelled from the Habsburg monarchy. Um, and I've never, with all the games I've played, I've never seen that uh, happen myself. But I could just uh, actually start at, you know, 1550 or whenever and have that happen. Exactly. Yeah. I like that they give you that control in the way that you're sort of setting up your scenario. Um, mm-hmm. And you have even finer grain control over that if you're bringing in something from a previous game, I suppose. <laughs> hmm. Uh, one thing that I want to mention about the people perspective versus the nation state perspective, like this game does a thing that, you know, most 4X games do where it distills a lot of things into numbers and doesn't really focus on the human aspect very much. And I'm wondering from your experience, does Victoria do a, a slightly better job of like, um, say, modeling out the fact that like doing or, you know, going to war is going to have more implications for your kingdom than simply the fact that your manpower number decreases. 100%. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the fact that like broader societal implications of these types of decisions are huge and they have lasting effects on societies and countries and nations. And I think EU4 models that out with manpower and maybe unrest. But I think there's a lot more that can go into that and I'm it sounds like that might be in Victoria's purview rather than EU's Victoria's much more into that I don't know how much of the A Coop series you read on EU and or Victoria um totally good um Victoria is obsessed with population um when you lose population in a war you're not just losing like a manpower number you're losing like a worker inside your province who is producing mm. goods see um, that's that's interesting victoria 2 two things i'll say victoria 2 had uh you know there, there's this whole balance of great powers sort of things that leads down this world war 1 um kind of way to do things uh where alliances clash against each other until the gigantic alliances of the great powers go to war with each other um i've finished maybe one game of vicky too and i went for that great war because i felt like oh it's like the final boss sort of thing <laughs> um it's not it's just everything gets fucked up <laughs> well if you're going for the high score in vicky 2 the trick is to stay out of that war because you it does nothing for your score um i admire that <laughs> uh, victoria 3 goes even a step farther with that um when you finish a war it not just not only tells you how many pops you lost which like a pop is almost the unit of currency in uh, Victoria 2. It is, instead of provinces, you are developing pops. Um, <laughs> so it, it's like, you know, you care about the pops. It tells you how many pops you lost. It tells you how much money this war cost you. Um, and like, I don't know if it's like how much money you actually spent on it or how much money you would have made if those pops were still alive. Yeah, yeah. Probably, uh, yeah, opportunity cost, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, but uh, it's the effect of it's supposed to be like a, this is how much money you would have made if you didn't do this war. Enjoy your 20 miles of mud. 
I love that. Uh, you see, that almost makes me want to play Victoria. Um, but um, I think I need a huge detox off of the 4X <laughs> games after this. This should be a nice, uh, nice, quick, breezy one. You know, very light, <laughs> simple, casual game. sort of game. <laughs> yep. What I've I've come to realize is um, most folks don't finish a game of Europa Universalis Four. Um, <laughs> Generally not. No. <laughs> the game finishes you. <laughs> <laughs>